Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're looking confident and ready, raring oh, to go. Look, I am, I am. Because I'm twice as old as Ruby, but Ruby has what most 30-year-olds want. She's got a good job and a loving husband. And Nikki Reed has written a book called Unmarry Me about Ruby. Now, let's look about... Welcome to 3CR, Nikki. Back to 3CR, Nikki. Hi, Jan. Thank you. <laughs> well, tell us about your character, Ruby. What is her job? Oh, Ruby's... Uh, she's like a, a campaigner for a company called Poverty Project. They uh, want to get food on tables and... Uh, she works in Melbourne and she's she's pretty full on. She's enthusiastic and doesn't mind prizing a bit of money out of corporations. People, yeah, and yeah. So she, she works for a, um, a social sincerity company and uh, she's got a big charity concert coming up. She has. She's got a, uh, a thing that's uh, become around her office called Her Gala. Um, yes. So she's kind of the mother of a gala and she's trying to get this... Uh, this gala off the ground and she's hooked a great big international guest. Now, uh, I need to tell you a little bit because by telling you, uh, our listeners, just how she gets this um, international performer to, to perform gives you just a little insight into Ruby, the character. That's right. She's uh, she, she hears that this international guest is, is staying in one of the big hotels, so she... Uh, Don's a disguise as a, uh, as a, what do you call it? It's not a cleaning lady. What do you call those? I had to, when I was writing it, I had to Google, what do you call the people who who attend in the hotels and take away your dirty linen and stuff? Anyway, she disguises herself as one of those people and knocks on the door and introduces herself and, and, uh, and hooks her guest. Yes, well, of course. So she's she's got this great guest. She's got this gala planned. And uh, but what happens with all workplaces? There's usually somebody that you don't get along with. And for her, it's Cassandra. Why doesn't Cassandra like her? There is Cassandra wants initially. Cassandra just wants Ruby's job. That's mm-hmm. it. There's no kind of you know love triangle, nothing like that. She just plain and simple wants her job and can't believe that she hasn't got Ruby's job. So Ruby has got a job that uh, it, people would die for. Very good job. But um, she's also got a husband, Mark, who loves her. And how did she meet her husband? Uh, she she met her husband uh, when her sister brought her husband home, when uh, when when, uh, when they were going out. Uh, um, yeah, she would have looked across the Christmas table and thought, he's a bit of all right, but didn't really recognise those feelings, I think. You know, it's their sisters. <laughs> so the sister and her husband have got young Celeste, a two-and-a-half-year-old girl. But this is a complicated family, especially now that the sister has got a new romance. That's right. The sister has, The sister uh, is in love with BJ, a woman she met uh, a few years ago and uh, managed to offload the husband and Ruby was there waiting in the wings and uh-huh. I'll have that. So it's, uh, which brings us to the heart of the problem. What happens on Ruby and Mark's second wedding anniversary? Yeah, yeah, they're having a lovely, lovely dinner. 
Ah, they're looking into each other's eyes. They're holding hands across the table. It's all that romantic stuff. And uh, and Ruby asks Mark for a divorce. A divorce. A divorce. That's right. Be- so, yeah, now she works in campaigns, so she, she knows how to put spin the words and everything. And this is why, well, why does she want the divorce? She, she basically wants a divorce so that because she feels if her sister can't marry BJ, then I don't want to be married either. I want to wait till the government lets everybody marry and then I want to be married. So this is from page 11. This is how um, okay. uh, Ruby tries to convince Mark or convince, well, maybe. Okay. Um, Mark, uh, she calls uh, Mark Boyd Boydy. Boydy. What if everyone stood up and said to the government, stuff it, we're not staying married if they, if they can't be. If I wasn't sitting, oh, okay. If I wasn't in sitting in bed right now, I'd be pacing the floor excited, energised by the best idea I'd ever had. What if we all, all of us married types, said, take your unequal laws and shove them. What if we had a gigantic citizen's divorce? I can see it out the front of birth, deaths and marriages in Collins Street, waiting for the doors to open at 9am. The line goes round the block. <clears throat> almost down to the Yarra River, couple after couple turning up to divorce for marriage equality. <laughs> so a citizen's <clears throat> divorce, rather different, uh, but the campaign really does bring some interest. In fact, it gets so big that she actually has to put a campaign employee on to run it. So, Todd, now, what are some of the things Todd does? Todd's Todd's just, uh, he's studying... Um, <clears throat> campaigning or whatever you want to call it at uni and he's this savvy techie smart guy and he says you've got to have a social uh, presence on social media and we've got to have badges and we've got to have t-shirts and you've got to get out there and and he somehow gets her onto tv and so she goes onto one of those you know those morning shows that (laughs) that i don't watch but goes onto one of those and uh, and even even gets up a flash mob she, he does he he, he <laughs> so surprises her with a flash mob at fed square so of course you know along with the people who are really behind the project there's also um a prank caller and just out of the blue you know uh, ruby picks up the of uh, the uh, phone and there's three words homosexuality is a sin Mm, that's all she hears. And then she gets a little bit worried because she starts to get letters under her door and also under her windscreen. So we know that it's getting personal and scary. But how do, you know, they love each other, so how do they go about getting a divorce? Well, I think when Ruby first thought of the idea, she thought, oh, we'll just get a divorce. It'll be cool. It's just a government, you know, paper thing. It's okay. Then she looks into it and discovers that you actually have to be separated or it's kind of fraudulent actually and uh, Mark who's a lawyer is a stickler he doesn't want to be disbarred or kicked out for committing a fraud so so they have to separate so well love and marriage and there's certain sexual desires so Ruby being a little offbeat does you know she she tries to organize this secret meeting but the police become involved and it's not the only time the police become involved because there's another time when um, Ruby sees somebody with a sticker, unmarry me sticker on the car and why did the police become involved that time? Ah, uh, because she kind of 
stalked the woman. <laughs> she wants to know who it is. She wanted to see who's got her sticker. What type of person has a has an I marry me sticker? Who is it? So she basically chases her around the neighborhood and great big circle. And... Uh, it's interesting who gives her support, you know, in this. And there was an, a nice little bit that she wrote in about an older person who said, I didn't have uh, freedom when I got married. And it was that Catholic Protestant time. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to kind of show that it's it's not the newest idea. Um, stepping in and telling people who they should be able to marry or or who they you know should shouldn't marry, and uh, and also that support for marriage equality does come from from you know across society. Mm. It's not just for you know I don't know long haired yeah. hippies or or you know. So they're separated and they've they've separated for quite a bit of time. But they always have the nightly call, the telephone call yep. that they chat. But sometimes Mark's missing and um, Ruby knows that he has a client, being a lawyer, he's got a client called Crazy Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so she starts to get jealous too. <sighs> now, there is a condition that Mark puts on this trial separation. That's right, that's right. Uh if we're going to get separated, then can we please try and have a baby? They'd been discussing babies, and uh, Ruby had decided that she was in some way unable to have a baby simply because she hadn't got pregnant yet. So <laughs> that's a little bit illogical. Who's yeah. getting Mark's sperm now? <laughs> 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 BJ, B, Ruby, uh, BJ and Peter want to have another baby. And since Peter's the, Mark's the father of the first baby, they think, oh, well, we'll, we'll ask Mark. And he's, yeah, sure, I can make people. And uh, so they, they're trying to, uh, you know, in the... <laughs> We've talked about <laughs> we've talked about the police, you know, sort of incidents because they were so funny. We've talked about um, oh Ruby on morning TV, you know, so many of these incidents through this book, "Unmarry Me" by Nikki Reed, are very visual, and also the dialogue dialogue is really, really, really snappy. Nikki Reed, did you have a background in screenwriting or, or something like that? Um, no, I, I don't, but I have a background in uh, in uh, watching romantic comedies and being a bit of a smart-ass. So, <laughs> so, so that's, uh, that's where that came from. Now, uh, I'd, I've spoken with Nikki Reed before. It was on a previous book called Un, Unzipped. So, Unzipped. And now we have Unzipped, Unmarry Me. And I just remember now chatting with Nikki. Of course, some of these characters were in that first book. And but she didn't really need to know that, you know. That's what I found. Yeah, I, I felt it was important to write something that that uh, that you didn't need to have homework or a basis in, <laughs> you know, to to be able to enjoy. Um, you do get it when you write recurring characters, though. You are a little bit hamstrung with, you know, what they've done in the past, and you're like. In some way, it's a path, and in some way, it's a jail. It's like, oh, God, she can't do this because she didn't do that in the first book. But uh, you can certainly read this without having heard of Unzipped, although why you wouldn't have heard of Unzipped, <laughs> I, I don't know. Nikki, you've got another book coming up. How long now? Oh, uh, well, you, you know, I'm 2,000 words in. I Ooh. think I started this thing on Monday. and that, <laughs> But already people are starting to do things that they uh, I didn't know they were going to do when I sat down to write. And uh, and I wrote 
probably an atrocious sex scene. <laughs> I was trying to be a little literary and push a metaf- metaphor into there. Like, oh. Nikki, you're writing a bad sex award, be careful. But, um, yeah, I'm going to see what happens with them. I think it's about regret. Okay. Yeah. I regret that you didn't write a better sex scene. Well, at the moment, <laughs> oh, I'm not regretting it. First draft, anything goes. So. Well, Nikki Reid, I've been speaking with about her uh, latest book, Unmarry Me, by Text Publishing. Thanks, Nikki. Thank Sounds you. like it could be entitled Unconsummated. Uh, <laughs> is it going to be an unbook or not? Yes, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Okay. Well, apropos of nothing at all, we're going to switch right now. Jan, what virtue is there in assassination? Well, if you read Roland Perry's The Honourable Assassin, you may have a chance of finding out. So, Roland, welcome to 3CR. David, thank you. Now, this novel begins as a murder mystery in Melbourne. It was a professional hit. A man was felled by a single bullet to the head outside a brothel off Ligon Street in the Melbourne suburb of Carlton. The time was 10.25pm on a Friday. The importance of the Melbourne setting? Well, we've got... uh, The background of the story is a lot of drug cartel mm. operations and they're moving, the major ones, the Mexican ones, are moving into Southeast Asia and we are a target. And this particular cartel was involved in doing deals with one of the major gangs in Melbourne. This is actually happening, by the way. It just happens to be a headline here and there, but it was a good basis for me to to start a story. And um, doesn't quite start there, David, does it? Because it goes back 35 well, years You've got the character. That. We'll get but on to the character. The contemporary story. Yeah, so it... it Sydney and Melbourne have got a major issue with with the drug scene, particularly methamphetamine and heroin. Um, and you might say, Mexico, that's a long way away, isn't it? The price of drugs in America is 10 times less than here. So the smart cartels are saying, well, the freight, you know, just across the Pacific, we yep. get the cost of the freight, we're going to generate massive income. Uh, I don't want to dwell on the research if it's a non-fiction book, but... It was fascinating to learn we had 500,000 cocaine uh, users, I won't say addicts, but users Users. in this country, which is massive. Affluent middle class, and it's the drug of choice at the dinner party for the 25 to 45-year-old. So it's it's very real. I I mean, that was part of the point of that Melbourne setting, something with which we can identify, which makes that drug problem all the more real. But then you uh, move to uh, Thailand. So we've got this other setting. Nat had booked two rooms in a villa-style hotel overlooking the river and the steel span crossing it, made famous by the film Bridge Over the River Kwai. After settling in, they sat sipping gin and tonics on a balcony as the sun set over an idyllic vista. A sampan floated by, a fishing boat chugged in the other direction. So now we're in Thailand, and this Mm. is going to pose a number of issues in terms of getting the realism of that setting. You've got the vista, but um, you've also then got the whole backdrop of politics in Thailand to Mm. get your head around. Mm. What's Mm. happening there? A quick association there is that the borders of Thailand are just as porous as our borders in terms of drugs, so you've got a similarity there. Uh, and the cartels are basing in Thailand, or trying to, illegally, and that was part of the, the setting. I arrived to do the research, which is the luck of the draw, the hour the coup began in Thailand. Now, I'd written the narrative without 
the coup and it just gave it a massive edge in the second draft of the book. And so that that's the, the background to it. A coup occurs, this is only 2014, and so I arrived to do the research right in the middle of it. And that's the luck of the draw. From my perspective, I was very gleeful that I got there at that point. Well, it, it adds an, a whole other layer because we're getting an insight into then uh, the uh, – corruption within the politics and the dimension of what's coming in there. Yes. How important is it to get your head around all of the in political intrigue going on then? It's important for the writer to do it. It's not for the reader. If a good fiction, it's between the lines. The classic case, there are many cases of, of this, but the classic case in, in the post-war period, um, post-Second World, World War period, is Le Carre, who is much underrated but he's captured an era and if you read any of his stuff, the early stuff on spying and so forth, you never know what the inside of MI6 looks like because you know he knows. Whereas everyone else tries the 40 ways to pick a lock and gives you great detail on the, you know, what's on the wall. You just know Lucario. Now, that's good fiction writing. In his case, I think great fiction writing. Can't do women very well, though. That's one of the weaknesses, I must say. And doesn't like drama. But take that out of it. Lucario is an ace. And we'll go down, you know, we won't be here to prove me wrong, in 100 years because he captured an era, a Cold War era. He was anti-Bond. So how have you gone about capturing that era in time mm, or mm, the, the yeah. current era, shall well, we say? All of the non-fiction I do, I have to do massive research. I, I'm not, uh, you know, I haven't got the background in law or medicine and, and you have to really get the grip to get the comprehension rather than the knowledge. Academics get knowledge, authors should get comprehension. Uh, and I've been going backwards and forwards through Thailand, Vietnam, Burma, doing research on other books, Changi Brownlow about the Thai Burma Railway, for example, uh, World War II, I did a big fat time on that. So I've been in the region um, and on the way through, I thought I'd return to fiction. I had written three fiction earlier in my career, started with fiction, it gave me a good run. Didn't know what I was doing, by the way, in the first one and, and it was, um, I believe it takes four books to have a voice and the confidence with it for a career. Uh, and I'm looking at most of the big names through who were professional. This is right. And it, the fiction gave me a chance to, to do three more books and really be confident because you do lack confidence when you start off. It's natural unless you're a complete narcissist. You've got to learn to the trade. So I've come back to fiction and what you do is get a feel for the, the issue. You can't be the world expert on Thailand. I know the geography of the place better than 99% of Thais now because I've been to all the remote parts of the country and so forth, right along the Mekong. So while I was doing research on the other books, I'm thinking about getting back and doing a thriller. And that's really the basis over eight years this has been uh, percolating. And that makes it much easier to write. It's never easy to write anything. Uh, but it, it gave me a, an education in Thailand, if you like, uh, by osmosis and just reading the papers, getting a feel for it, talking to as many people as I could, spies, diplomats, politicians, locals, everyone. So you get a sense of it. You have a number of characters, but we'll concentrate on the main ones. Our hero is one Vic Cavalier. He's formerly of the SAS. He's a journalist, a failed marriage. He didn't alcohol. make the SAS. He failed to get in the he SAS. Failed get, but he, but he, he could have. He, <laughs> he, he could have. He was the best, the best was, recruit. But Based for, on a real character in that sense. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've amalgamated two people in the story. One, oddly enough, uh, my background, because I've been 47 years uh, with 30 books and 
30 films, 30 documentaries and a lot of articles. So I've been travelling around and a lot of my contacts are espionage, uh, military and so forth over the time. You don't have to become one, you know, you can you can uh, write about test cricket and not be a test cricketer. And I've never I've been offered work by the major security agencies in, in, in the French, MI6, ASIO, CIA, and in fact our military intelligence as well. Why? Because I was getting around a lot and you can write a report, as simple as that. So I was just wondering how much of you was in Vic Cavalier. There were one or two incidents. The watered-down version. A watered-down version. <laughs> because Vic's a, a journalist, so he's yes, into writing. Yes, yes. But Vic has uh, one little incident. He has to go into hospital for a one-day procedure and has to uh, have yep. somebody that will uh, pick him up and stay with him overnight after the procedure. And I'm thinking this would be um, typically something that, somebody uh, of my age and your age would have gone through and I'm thinking, you're writing yourself into this. Well, I think the key is, and it may sound lazy, but if you've actually experienced it and it's a little dramatic or difficult, you naturally use that. And I think there's, it's perfectly normal. In fact, it's very difficult to create situations with any sense of reality if you haven't experienced it. Hmm. I mean, you can concoct something and guess and say, well, I think that could be right about that person. If you've actually been there and, and been near it, or as I say, a watered-down version, it does help enormously. So those dramatic moments that, you know, there's a great fear about getting cancer all the time, all males go through it with prostate, and I thought, let's build a little bit of that fear in the aftermath of it into the story. Well, it makes it, the it builds a character. It builds a character. Also, there's a, there's a bit of a deceptional device there because it really humanises him, makes him, uh, I won't say look weak, but it shows him under stress. Well, he's also of a particular age where he can't perhaps uh, operate as he would have true. had he been part of the SAS. That's true. Yeah. That's true. But then uh, juxtaposed with uh, Cavalier, a sort of foil for him, mm -hmm. is Jacinta Lin Lai. Just to give yeah. you an indication, she leapt in and punched one attacker hard in the face, stunning him. She then swivelled on one foot and kicked the man with the bat hard on the neck. He dropped the weapon, reached for his throat and gurgled in agony. Jacinta's movements were so swift and agile, they could have been called balletic, if not for the brutality she was inflicting. A third attacker pulled out a knife. He moved to stab Jacinta, but she was too quick, chopping down hard on his forearm. Arm, forearm. The knife fell to the grass as she swung an elbow into his face. What can you tell us about Jacinta? Well, as, as the main character, Cavalier, is 50%, you know, the old hack me, 47 years in the business, half a century is a long time. And f the other bit is another character who will have to remain nameless. Uh, this is 90% based on a real character. And um, I've watched her fight. And she makes Rhonda. You remember seeing that terrible cage fight last week? Mm. Where she would take those two on in the ring and beat both of them in 30 seconds. I watched her beat a man who was 60, 40 kilograms heavier. I thought it was a setup. I was sitting watching it with a doctor in Phuket in a ring in the uh, stadium. And he this said, is no, Muay, Muay Thai. This is Muay Thai boxing. Muay Thai. And it's the most lethal form because you've got eight points in the body and the elbow being the worst, the killer part of the body. And she had, I, I, I can do this for a Melbourne audience who might uh, know of Ron Barassi, who was only 5 foot 10, about 180 centimetres, but had enormously long arms and he could take a high mark with bigger men against, against bigger men. Now, she had probably 5 centimetres longer than the average male turns the elbow. And she had a very, and she could punch, use the elbow like a punch. And she was very, very powerful in the ring. And when I saw her, I thought, 
this is this is the this was the epiphany. I have to use the, the background of this particular character because it was so powerful. There's a lot more to her than just being a Mai Tai boxer. A lot more to her. There's a lot more to her, as yeah. you say. What can you reveal about that, <laughs> if anything at all? Or well, are you going to leave it for the reader to uh, find out? I don't. I really don't. I, I was thinking of interviewing her. She lives in Pattaya, and and I thought, no, it's too close to nonfiction. I know enough about her anyway. Let's say that she had a career. After she actually tried television and film, and because of her exceptional abilities and fighting and so forth, action movies didn't work. And then she slipped out of light, and I found out where she went after that. And that was fascinating to me, which is really the godsend in the book, and what she did after that. And you can imagine someone like that, a strong character, would be very useful within an intelligence unit or a a force, a police force of some sort. So that's where I found the character. Strong. Attractive, but with a an um, edge, an edge, um, which might be of interest, shall we say, in terms of how it's one, one of the two surprises. The interest is one of the two surprises in the book. The biggest surprise, which three publishers wanted the book for, comes later. As you know, you've read it, mm. and thank you for reading, because not all media people do read, and I'm used to that going around the circuit, of course. Um, the second surprise, the big fat one in the story. It reminded me when I was writing it of um, that wonderful moment in the film, The Sixth Sense. Has everyone seen The Sixth Sense? Wonderful movie. And the wedding ring falls off the uh, the, the former bride's, the wife's finger, hmm. and Bruce Willis realises he's a ghost. Now, I ain't got no ghosts, although they're very, very spiritual in Thailand, and it was tempting to feed some in. I give a little touch of the mysticism of the place, but it's more pragmatic than that. Uh, but that moment where everyone goes... What happened early in the early season? You want to watch the movie immediately and see it again. All the three publishers who read it got that moment and were flipping back. And that gave me great satisfaction because when you write it, all writers will tell you, you don't know if it's working. Mm. You really don't know if it's working. And so it's worked and that's why the book's published now basically. But but that that was a big moment for me to pull off. The interesting thing then is it starts as a murder mystery sort of thriller but changes. Now, I can't give anything away in terms of um, story, but we actually, or the reader, actually learns who the killer is. The assassin is. And who the assassin is. Mm. But then it the, the story her. morphs into then an escape uh, tale, shall well, we she, say. Well, she, he has to get out, or he, she, whoever it is, has to yes. get out of the country then, obviously. So, um, yeah, there's a transition then that has occurred mm-hmm. there, which mm-hmm. is an interesting sort of uh, change mm-hmm. to this genre, shall we say. Uh, how Do you know of it being done, other than in The Sixth Sense, in other... No, I don't actually, but there probably has. Everything has. I certainly wasn't aware of it. You know, it it, it gave me great satisfaction to have that, to pull that off. But then the killer, he, she has to get out of the country. And uh, let's just say that one of the assassinations I traced is is actually actually occurred Mm. for what it's worth. And you've got to say for what it's worth because it's got to work as fiction and narrative. You can't be blinding people with the non-fiction side of it. But I did trace the uh, exit of one particular person in the story and uh, uh, there are two major kills in the story and I traced one in how the killing happened and how they got out. And that was that was fascinating to me, absolutely fascinating. To stay in the same hotels, get the same boat out down the Mekong, all those things. Right. Now, um, yes, just this whole style then of writing 
uh, novels of this type. As you've been saying, you've got a, an extensive background in biographies and histories. You know, Bradman, Shane Warne. Uh, don't forget Monash. The, don't forget the number no, one Australian I, of all time. I actually you. did read that Monash <laughs> oh, one years and years and years ago, yeah. uh, sort of thing. But what brought you back to fiction? Well, I'd started in it and I'd had a very good run with non-fiction, but um, having been tickled with the freedom relatively speaking, of fiction, I wanted to come back at some point. You learn a lot on the way through with biography, the economy of dialogue, for example, insignificant dialogue or significant dialogue not being there, uh, narrative moving along, and biography. So, you, But it is such a transition. You've got to think in a totally different way. As I said before, instead of the discipline of uh, notes and so forth, you've got to use your imagination, lateral think, and it's a different medium altogether, and you have to develop that muscle. And the writing style needs to be sparse and yes. terse in many yeah, ways for this, yes. this sort of style. Look, unfortunately, Roland, we are going to actually have to end the interview there. We're running out of time. The book is The Honourable Assassin, if there is such a thing. The author, Roland Perry. It is Alan and Unwin publication, and you have a website. Latecut.net, no paywall. And sometimes I do long form pieces. The one on the background of this will be up in a week or so. So there we go. There we go, Jack. Thank you. Right. Well, thank you, David and uh, Roland. I and of course I was speaking with Nikki Reed about Unmarry Me. Four books before you can have a career in writing, Nikki. Yeah. Well, oh, did you quite I'm happy I started the next one on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. <laughs> 